You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 226, Colossians 1, verse 1 through 13. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Busy as usual, but kind of enjoying a little bit of the summer, too. Still hot here in Texas, but uh, every day that goes by, Mike, it gets closer and closer to our conference, which you can get the live stream, which uh, will have a replay. So you don't have to catch the live stream, Mike, uh, live. There will be a replay of it. So go sign up for the live stream at nakedbibleconference.com, and you can watch it at your own pace. Uh, at least for two weeks, and even the people who are attending be able to have access to that mm-hmm. uh, live stream video and replay it uh, at will for those two weeks, and then uh, you know we'll have other stuff to announce. Uh, till then, yeah, good. I hope you'll join us at least for the live stream. Yeah, I mean that's what, what can you say? You know, if if you want to see it in 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 some sort of near space time continuum. <laughs> you know, get the live stream, especially since I mean, it's, yeah, who knows who knows about later. I mean. Especially since it's the we'll, inaugural, we'll you don't want to miss the first one. So uh, yeah, we want everybody to partake in it and uh, be there for it. So, uh, but we thank everybody that's purchased a ticket and signed up for the live stream. Uh, we look forward to doing it, and uh, I hope everything technically works out. So, <laughs> right, cross my fingers. I'm going to be a, a basket case that weekend, Mike. Uh, running, we around. might see Trey cry. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that well, might be better than the live stream. I, yeah. I, I, we I'm can gonna, put that on the live stream. I'm going to reserve that to after the conference when it's all over and said <laughs> done. I'm going to go crawl, a, curl in a ball in a corner and just <laughs> What does cry. Trey look like when he cries? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. That's good. Well, Mike. That's uh, my CTV right there. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a second, uh, a separate live stream uh, yeah. uh, for that. Uh, but uh, all right, Mike, well, this episode starts our new book study in Colossians. Yep. yep. Finally jumping in. So we're in Colossians one, obviously. And I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go up through the first 13 verses. Uh, next time we'll pick up actually with verse 13 again. And hopefully I'll remember to tell you why I'm doing it that way when we get to the end here, but Colossians one, one through 13, uh, again, for those who may not have listened to other book studies. Again, my method is pretty simple. Uh, I, I use ESV, uh, but you know, we, we drill down into it and do some, uh, you know, Greek stuff in this case. And I tend to just go through a passage and camp out on things that I think are interesting. I think the audience might be interested in, or that just generate a, you know, a good question. So let's just jump into verse one here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I'm going to stop there. I should have included, I, I stop on things that are just hobby horse things for me. <laughs> uh, this is one of them. Um, and I, I think for anybody who's sort of listened to the podcast for a while, you, you would have suspected that I would stop at the word saints. I have said before, I just hate this translation. Not ESV, everybody does it, but to translate Hagioi, okay, the holy ones as saints just really irritates me. So this is yet another opportunity for me to vent 
about this translation. But I, I thought, you know, hey, you know, I, I've kind of vented before about this, but why not drill down a little bit on it just so that I can hopefully sort of explain to people why I care, you know, why this is such an irritation for me. So that, again, that might be interesting. So holy ones, Hagioi, to the Hagioi, to the holy ones and faithful, you know, brethren, we'll just make it a plural, in Christ at Colossae. If you actually do a search, again, for holy ones in the Old Testament, Hebrew lemma would be kadosh. And if you search for that lemma in the plural form, what do you find? Well, it's mostly used where you have a you know plural reference that are supernatural beings. Okay, the exception, I mean, it, it's it's twenty sometimes. The exception is Daniel eight twenty four, where you have kadosh used in the plural, and it's not um, holy, you know, supernatural beings. It's it, it, it's humans, but most of the time, it's supernatural beings. And it, it's actually, you know, really clear, you know, when, when again, the reference, when, when kadoshim is not used adjectivally to describe something else, sometimes it's used to describe God in the plural, because Elohim is plural, then you have grammatical agreement. Um, other times you have sort of a, you know, a, an honorific situation going on, where you have the Holy One mentioned, then you have a plural of this. And so it's, you know, it, it, it's again just to magnify God. But other times it's very clearly a set, a group of supernatural beings. And that's important, again, to me anyway, because it's a reference point for Paul, for really anybody uh, who knows their Old Testament pretty well. Now, Paul's writing to Colossians, and we said in our introduction that. Yeah, this is a Gentile location. There's going to be a lot of Gentiles here, but he has these. He has a problem with with Judaizers, and then again, there are certain streams of Judaism that will will become, will be picked up and become what we later know as Gnosticism. So there, there's this mystical Judaism thing, you know, going on. There, there's a lot of Jewish context here, and and this again, I think for Paul, again, he's going to have this floating around his head, and he's going to have a lot of a lot of his readers, who again, whether they're converted Jews, or maybe, you know, he's given them ammunition to confront Judaizers, or whether he's trying to, you know, reach the Judaizing element, you know, that whatnot. There's, there's, there's a lot of Jewishness about this epistle. And so I don't think it's out of step here to, you know, to camp on this. Holy ones in the Old Testament, in a number of cases, supernatural holy beings. The, I'm, I'm going to just drill down on two here. And if you did this search, Kadosh in the plural, Hebrew Bible, you're going to find Psalm 89, verse 5, and Psalm 89, verse 7. Now that's, those are the English numbers. In the Hebrew Bible, the numbering would be 89, 6, and 89, 8. But, you know, we're using English. We're looking at English Bibles here, even though we're talking about a Hebrew lemma. In Psalm 89, 5, we have, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. And then two verses later, God is a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Now, if you look at that, if you, again, drill down in those verses, in verse 5, Psalm 89.5, again, Hebrew numbering is 89.6, the word translated assembly is kahal. And that's the interesting point here. This is where I, what I wanted to reach in my drill down here. There are roughly 116 instances of kahal. Okay, in 70 of those in the Septuagint, okay, 116 times kahal occurs. When it's translated in the Septuagint 70 times, it's ecclesia. 
That's the same word that's going to be used throughout the New Testament for the church. Now, that's not true of sowed if Psalm 89, you know, verse 7, the council of the holy ones, the sowed of the holy ones. But it is true of the assembly of the holy ones, two verses earlier, just varying vocabulary. Kahal is a very familiar term that Septuagint translators render ecclesia. Now, the point, again, is that this is a very common terminology for the church. The church is composed of believers, right? Believing human beings, humans that are in the family of God. What this does, if people are familiar, again, think about this. Paul is dealing with a lot of, you know, there's a lot of Jewish context going on here. But a lot of these people are reading the Septuagint. Even if they are Jewish, and certainly if they're not, you know, they're going to be reading in Greek. But when they, when, they, when they see Haggioi, and if they've been reading their Old Testament, in the Septuagint especially, you know, they're going to cr- come across references to holy ones in the ecclesia of God, in the heavens. In Psalm 89, the council is in the heavens. This creates a semantic and conceptual link between believers, okay, humans who are brought in to the family of God and whose destiny is glorification in the family of God, in the presence of God forever because of Christ. It creates a conceptual semantic link between them and the existing divine council. Okay, that is why holy one's terminology should just be left to say what it says. It, it, it creates this mental link, and it's, it's a theological link back to this idea. And, and this dovetails with the wider picture of biblical theology. You get into theosis here. Again, evangelicals would call that glorification. Scholars would use, the, would use terms like theosis or deification. We've talked about the, these things before. I've written about it in Unseen Realm. And if you haven't read Unseen Realm by this point, you really need to because I don't bother to repeat content in that book you know, as we're going through things here in the podcast. But, you know, we've written about that, how the destiny of believers, you know, we're already partakers of the divine nature, but our destiny is glorification. It's to be made like God. It's to be made like Jesus. It's, it's to be made divine. Okay, we're not going to become Yahweh's individually and then get our own planets and all that stuff. That isn't the point. The point is we are made fit to occupy sacred space with God's supernatural family that's already there. And that was the intent in Eden. Again, Eden is where God lives, where God lives, his entourage is, his heavenly host, his bureaucracy, his his spiritual spirit beings, bureaucracy, because that's where he's going to run the show. That's where he does business. There in Eden, humans are brought into that environment for a specific purpose, to live with God. They are made to be fit for sacred space. They have to nullify their, themselves. They have, to, they have to sort of do something to nullify their membership. And they do. Okay, there's rebellion. But this is what God had in mind. God wanted a human family blended with his supernatural family in his presence, co-partners with him to enjoy his created things, his created world, and to fellowship with him as intelligent beings, as his children. That's why he shares his attributes with us and, with, and not with the animal kingdom. Okay, these are all big picture theological things. And when you when you when you get, come across a term like hagioi, holy ones, and you translate it saints to a modern audience, that not only cuts them off from the Old Testament context, but it makes them think of modern things like you know saints in Catholicism or. or maybe the, the Eastern branch of Christianity or whoever uses saint terminology, they're not thinking 
of their appointed destiny as members of the divine council, as part of the great cloud of witnesses, book of Hebrews, okay? Earlier in the book of Hebrews, where we are presented in the congregation, okay, in the council, we are presented to God and God has presented to us. This is Hebrews 2. This kind of translation just sort of terminates that association. It cuts it off. It makes it unseeable. And, and that's really my objection, you know, to a translation like saints. So, okay, I've, I've hopped on that hobby horse again. But since it's here in Colossians, I feel justified, <laughs> um, you know, to the holy ones, to the holy ones and faithful brethren, faithful Adelphoi is the term actually in Greek. Now, ESV has as its translation, faithful brothers in Christ. And I don't want to, I don't want to rabbit trail too much on translation wars here, but ESV was created in part as a response to gender neutral translation trends uh, in the evangelical world. And so it will, it will take a, a, a Delphoi here. And stick with the masculine in many instances. It doesn't always do this, but here it does. It goes with brothers. Well, I would suggest to you that this verse and a number of other ones are one of the many instances where women should be contextually included in a term like Adelphoi, which again, literally, just if you're just applying a gloss to it, means brothers. You know, we're, we're familiar with Philadelphia, you know, city of brotherly love, Adelphos, brother. Okay, that's what you, that's what you see when you look it up in the, in the lexicon. Well, there are a number of cases where that just really isn't good. It's, it's not adequate. Women should be included. So um, just, just a few examples. I mean, th- this is really easy to demonstrate. Let's go to Romans. Okay, Romans 1.13. Paul's writing, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. What? He, he, he doesn't want the, the men in the church to be ignorant of this, but it's fine if the women are ignorant of it. The women don't need that he really wanted to, to, to visit them. That just doesn't make sense. Okay, likewise, my brothers, Romans 7, 1, likewise, you know, Adelphoi, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, nor that we may bear fruit for God. Well, the women don't need to do that, just the men. It's only the men who've died to the law through the body of Christ, okay, that they may bear fruit for God. I mean, it's obvious women are included in this. I mean, I could just go on and on and on and on with these kinds of examples. I'm not going to belabor the point, but I think it's worth bringing up. You know, do not do not be misled either by English translations or by sort of the rhetoric that goes with this. That it's always, you know, don't don't be misled into thinking that it's always inappropriate to have a gender-neutral translation. I mean, if I were doing this, I would say to the holy ones and faithful men and women in Christ at Colossae, because, hey, there's faithful women there too, <laughs> okay? And, and elsewhere, Paul uses the very same term to obviously include women in what he's talking about. It, it's, it's just transparently obvious. So I don't really know why you know, because ESV doesn't do this kind of thing consistently. I don't know why it, it just sticks with brothers here. I mean, I'm sure somebody could tell me there's some reason, but that doesn't mean it's a good one. I just think this is worth bringing up here. So don't be misled into thinking that, you know, a gender neutral translation of a word like Adelphoi is always like evil and sinister and has some agenda attached to it. It doesn't. It just makes sense in context. You know, sometimes you can say those sorts of things that 
different publishing houses, different scholars want to translate a term, you know, a certain way to to demasculate some point of, of a passage. I mean, that that happens too. But let's not assume that that's always the case because it isn't. We're just talking about context here. So let's continue in verse three. We always thank God, and Paul writes, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Oh, there it is again. All the holy ones. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I'm going to stop there at the end of verse 10, just you know, to point out, make a few observations here. I mean, not to be silly, but probably ought to say something about verse 9. From the day we heard this, we have not ceased to pray for you. It doesn't mean that's all they were doing, you know, like, like you pray 24-7 or something like that. It's just, you know, when you, when you see language about prayer in this, of this type, in this mode, you know, they're just talking about something that is regular. It's, it's very regular. Not that it consumes, you know, the, their, the entirety of their time. It's the only activity they do, and they're not just doing any, anything else. You know, obviously, they're doing lots of other things in ministry and just personally. But I, th- I think that ought to be very obvious, but just to some, it's not. Some, you know, sort of judge themselves in a, unnecessarily in, in this regard. You know, pray without ceasing, not cease to pray for you. It means you should just, you should always be doing it in, in, in terms of this is going to be part of your day all the time, moment by moment, you know, throughout the day, that, that sort of thing. It's not, you know, something that squeezes everything else out. Now, we have several terms here, knowledge of his will. We have spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then in verse 10, we have a reference to the knowledge of God once again. Now, we, we said in our introduction, you know, we of necessity had to comment on what is the relationship of some of the things that Paul is going to talk about to Gnosticism? Okay, Gnosticism, of course, come, is derivative from the term gnosis, which means knowledge. And so some, again, drawing on our introduction here, so if you haven't listened to that, you need to go back and listen to it. You know, some scholars and, and, and other readers, you know, have just assumed that when Paul mentions knowledge, he must be talking about Gnosticism because he's using a gnosis word. Actually, the word here isn't gnosis, it's epignosis. Uh, which is obviously related, but it's not quite you know the same term. But if you remember our introduction, you know we said that you know full blown Gnosticism is is later than Paul's era, and even even Gnostic texts, the Nag Hammadi texts, don't they don't even refer to themselves as Gnostics. They they use other terms. Uh, that that's something that comes along later because you know we have sort of systemized systematized schools of thought within what we would call the Gnostic community. But even they don't really use that term for themselves. Um, so we, we have to be careful, again, about what we're doing here. We do not 
based again on the information we shared last time in the introduction. You know, I do not see you know Paul addressing Gnosticism in Colossians. He do, he he will address streams that will flow into what becomes known as Gnosticism for sure. But full blown Gnosticism is not in its in existence when Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians. So let's talk about the the, the knowledge terminology here. You know, some have picked up on epignosis. And, you know, again, have seen a hint that Paul, you know, is picking up the language and, you know, by implication, refuting Gnostic opponents, you know, specific religious groups and whatnot. Uh, you know, N.T. Wright comments on this in his uh, Tyndale commentary in Colossians. So he, he says, hey, you know, some have done this, you know, and they believe that Paul is picking up the language, trying to refute Gnostic opponents, religious groups which, drawing on many traditions, held out the offer of a salvation attained through spiritual knowledge, gnosis, which would enable one to escape from the material world and realize one's true or one's spiritual destiny. There is, right writes, however, no evidence of such teaching in any clearly defined form at this period, and when it does appear, it probably it is probably itself dependent on Christianity, you know, some Christian context. What Paul is speaking of here is not an esoteric knowledge confined to private religious experience or exclusive sex. It is a knowledge of his, i.e. God's will, which is open to all God's people. Again, that's the end of the N.T. Wright quote from his Tyndale commentary. And again, that's, that's basically, what we, basically what we said in our introduction as far as the historical context here. Again, we need to remember that, and I think you know Wright's point is generally well taken, but really all you need to do is look at verse 10. Verse 10, the knowledge is defined. Let's go back up to verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's not an inner knowledge. It's not an inner awakening. It's not self-realization. You know, these are all going to be, eventually, these are going to become Gnostic th- themes and threads. It's not. It's the knowledge of God. Spiritual wisdom and understanding could just as well be rendered. This is, you know, interesting. As just I'm talking about grammat- grammatically now. The phrase "spiritual wisdom and understanding" you could just render that opposite, like spiritual understanding and wisdom, instead of spiritual wisdom and understanding, spiritual understanding and wisdom. The grammar can support either. So I mention that because it would be wrong to say that one of these, wisdom or understanding, that one of the nouns is more spiritual than the other. It's not. The grammar doesn't allow you to say that. Uh, Dunn, in his commentary, his New International Greek Textual Commentary, Greek Testament Commentary, on this epistle, adds this thought. He says, the more immediate background for the thought here again with this you know, spiritual wisdom and understanding or spiritual understanding and wisdom, however we're going to render that. He says the more immediate background is Jewish, since the combination of these two terms, the two nouns, wisdom and understanding, is a repeated feature of Jewish writings. Now, if you have his commentary, he gives you a whole grocery list of passages where these two nouns are combined in Text from the Hebrew Bible, you know, Exodus 31, 3, 35, 31, Deuteronomy 4, 6, you know, Job 8, 10, 12, 13, you know, just he has a whole slew of them, Psalm 49, 3, 111, 10, so on and so forth. And he, he also includes, um, you know, Second Temple literature. So the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Judith, Book of, you know, Ben Sirah, 
Epistle of Baruch, the Testament of Zebulun. I mean, th- this is a very common way for Jewish writers to talk about the knowledge of God, the, the God of Israel, the God you know of, of Judaism, the God of the Hebrew Bible. Again, this I, I'm I'm belaboring this a little bit to get away from the notion that this has anything to do with inner knowledge, inner enlightenment. Again, these classic Gnostic themes, because again, you don't you don't really have you know the full-blown Gnosticism here to deal with. That's just not the point. Now, Dunn goes on to comment. He says, here too, the wisdom in particular is understood as given through the law, but it is equally recognized that such wisdom can only come from above. In other words, the source of the wisdom is the true God, you know, the, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, because again, this, this is a very common way of expressing knowledge and wisdom that the God of Israel gives to his people. So back to Don, he says, it's particularly to be noted uh, is the recognition that wisdom and understanding come only from the Spirit, Exodus 31.3, 35.31, Isaiah 11.2, and then on into Second Temple Lit, the, you have wisdom, 9.17 through 19. You have Philo mentioned this. You have Ben Sira, 39.6. The Philo references uh, D. Gigantibus. 2227, 4th Ezra. Again, he's got a whole grocery list of places where this is true. So this is the wider Jewish community. If you were a Jew or a Judaizer, uh, if you, or if you had just pretty good exposure to your to the, the scriptures of the Jew through the Septuagint, if you're living at Colossi, Colossae and you hear this, you know what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about some esoteric, mystical you know, experience some sort of navel gazing, looking within. That's not where he, what he's referring to at all. And everybody would know it. It's only you know modern people who want to see Paul as either, you know, promoting some Gnosticism of his own, or they want to see Paul rejecting Gnosticism so they can turn around and sit and call Paul evil. You know, like like it's because of Paul we don't have all these extra books in the Bible, like the Gospel of you know Mary and Philip and all these other Gnostic texts, all that sort of nonsense. Okay. You 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 just you basically have to ignore the Judi- the Judaizing and or Jewish context to all of this terminology. And so Dunn is saying, well, that just wouldn't be a good idea because there's a heap big pile of it. Back to Dunn, he says whether there's an implied rebuke of an alternatively conceived or false wisdom is less clear, since in that case we might have expected more emphasis on the point, as Paul does in First Corinthians one and two. But the allusion in Colossians 2.23 does indicate that a claim to wisdom was part of the teaching in Colossae that, is called, that called forth the response of this letter. Colossians 2.23 says, Paul is addressing these, you know, the false teachers, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know, so Paul is actually pitting the wisdom, spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding, and the knowledge of God over against those guys. Paul is clearly drawing on Old Testament, the Old Testament as his context. That is his point of orientation for the knowledge of God, not whatever these other fellows are saying. So I think Dunn's commentary there is pretty helpful. Let's move to verse 11. Paul adds, uh, let's let's go back to verse nine. So and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Continuing verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. There it is again. Let 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 me do it correctly. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy ones in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the end of verse 13. That's really where we're going to stop for this episode. But let me just read you that again. And because I'm, I'm going to ask you about the vocabulary specifically. Look, look at the terms. Inheritance, holy ones domain of darkness, kingdom of his beloved son. I mean, if you've read Unseen Realm, (laughs) this should just be setting lights off in your head, you know, just from the get-go. So giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy ones in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Inheritance. Greek word is kleros there. Now, if you read kind of your standard commentary, they're going to talk about, oh, kleros is used of land because the land was the inheritance, the promised land, 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 land. Yeah, that's only half the story. Who, as in people, you know, were God's inheritance in the Old Testament? Let's try to divorce our mind just a moment from land, but are there people in the Old Testament that God speaks of as his inheritance? Hmm. You know, I wish I had the final Jeopardy music. I would cue it right here. Does it ring any bells? Again, if you've read Unseen Realm, you should be screaming Deuteronomy 32.9. Okay, the, 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 it's the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Deuteronomy 32.8 and 9. When the Most High divided the nations, you know, set the divisions you know, of mankind and all that stuff. He divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. But Israel... Israel is Yahweh's nachala, his inheritance, his portion. Okay, Israel is his nachala, his inheritance. It's Deuteronomy thirty-two nine. Now this this that term in the Hebrew Bible nachala is used two hundred and twenty-two times. Two hundred and eleven of those, okay, in the Septuagint are rendered with kleros. This is a very clear path, again, not just back to turf, to dirt. And again, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview obviously includes the concept of holy ground. We get that. But kleros also refers to a people. And if, you, if you're looking at it that way, I mean, you go back you know, to what Paul actually said here. If you're thinking about people, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy ones. Okay, you, believers at Colossae, are made fit to share, to have a place in God's people. Now, to a Gentile, that's obviously a big deal. To a Jew, it's a big deal, too, because they, they weren't really thinking about you know, the Gentiles being included here. Again, that's Paul. Paul refers to, to the gospel as the mystery because of that reason, that the Gentiles be made full heirs full children of Abraham, like he puts it in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. But again, if, if, you, if you come across the word inheritance of the holy ones, and you're thinking holy ones, 
hey, you know, back in the Old Testament, there, there are a number of places where that was, you know, God's supernatural family. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. Again, these are, what we're doing here is dot connecting. And what I'm suggesting to you is that sometimes your English translation makes it hard for you to connect dots. It's unfortunate, but it's just the reality. So again, this is what, again, just I hate to keep referencing Unseen Realm here, but I'm going to do it because it's, it's the best reference point I have. What I was trying to do in Unseen Realm is connect dots for you. Just again, show you the lay of the land, connect the dots, give you the, 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 the network of ideas, you know, the, the mosaic here, so that you can drill down wherever you like. But, but once you see the things, once you see the connections, you can't unsee them. And, and that's really what we're shooting for here. When Paul is talking about people as an inheritance with the holy ones, and we, we, we know elsewhere that Paul is very tuned in, again, to what we call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Uh, it, it's kind of obvious you know, he, how he looks at the, the Colossians. The Colossians are full heirs. They are full members in the family of God. And that family of God, the human family of God, has the inheritance of the holy ones. They will one day judge angels, like he says in 1 Corinthians 6. You know, they will one day rule the nations, you know, with the Lord, because the Lord, the Messiah, is their brother. That's why Jesus can have us share his throne. That's why Jesus can hand us the rod and say, hey, I know the Messiah is supposed to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Here, here, you can help. You're a partner. Right? It's because we are grafted into a supernatural family. And in our glorification, our deification, our theosis, whatever term you want to use, that's your destiny. And Paul's language here, drawn from the Septuagint, which will take you again back into some of these passages, is important. It shouldn't be obscured by translation. And this is a really good place to illustrate how this helps. Now, Again, just if I can sort of condense this and summarize it, the point is that at salvation, we share in the inheritance of the holy ones. On earth, that means we, we, you know, we as Gentiles, we'll just speak as Gentiles here, on earth, it means that we are part of the earthly people of God, just like Israel was. Okay? But the bigger picture is that we, it, you know, we're, we're members of this heavenly family as well, which includes these supernatural beings. Now, the idea of a remnant community of holy ones on earth here, that correspond to heavenly holy ones, believe it or not, that idea, I'll say it again, the idea of a remnant community of holy ones on earth that correspond to the holy ones in the heavens, in the council, that is part of Second Temple Jewish theology, especially at Qumran. What, I'm, what I've done, again, is you know, I don't have time to you know read through all the passages and, and you know do that kind of thing. But if you are a newsletter subscriber, here we go again. Please subscribe to the newsletter if you want content that you can't find on the internet. Okay, this is what we're about. If you want content that you can't find on the internet, please subscribe to the newsletter. There is a link at the bottom of every issue, and I have put in the folder this article: Paul B. DeCock. Article title, Holy Ones, Sons of God, and the Transcendent Future of the Righteous in First Enoch and the New Testament. Now, if that doesn't make you salivate for content, I don't know what's going on. 
holy ones, sons of God, and the transcendent future of the righteous in First Enoch in the New Testament. It's from the, the peer-reviewed journal Neo Testamentica. It's a 1983 article. It's 12 pages. Again, it's going to be somewhat technical, but but it's good stuff. I mean, it, there are a number of articles I, I could you know cite and, and put in there, but I thought this would be a good one, a good starter point to, to, to make the point that, again, the idea of a remnant community, community of believers, faithful believers, faithful brethren, which includes men and women, okay? The idea of a remnant community of holy ones on earth that correspond to heavenly holy ones is part of Second Temple Jewish theology. It just is. And especially at Qumran, this article is going to give you a focus on Enoch, but it, it's just good stuff. It, it just helps you again, if you have this in your head and you're aware of, of, of this kind of conceptual connection, when you read what Paul's saying here in the first chapter of Colossians, it's like, oh, I know where he's going with this. But it's obscured by your, your lack of access to this kind of material, and it's obscured, in this case, unfortunately, by translation. Saints. Ugh. Okay, I'm going to try to move on now. <laughs> back, back to verse 13. Uh, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, let's talk about some verbs here. Delivered. Fruit am I. You could translate it rescued, which is kind of interesting. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness. I kind of like that. I kind of, I kind of like the semantic, you know, feel. I mean, delivered is really the same, but I, you know, rescue, I think, kind of captures the picture a little bit more that we were lost. Okay, we're lost. We were lost. We have to be rescued. It's not that you know, we're, we're just in a pickle here and, you know, and, and boy, if we had enough time, we could, you know, we could get out of this. No, we have to be rescued. Okay. We're rescued. Exodus, I mean, uses this verb, I mean, Ruhamai is the lemma, several times, again, to describe the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, again, which is ultimately a victory over the gods of Egypt. This night, I will judge the gods of, of Egypt. This night, I will have victory over the gods of Egypt. Um, you know, tense-wise, this verb, you know, for delivered, you know, the, the rescued, he has rescued us and transferred us. Both of those verbs are going to be in the same tense in Greek. They're going to be both aorist. And I'll comment on that in just, well, I might, I might as well jump into it now. I mean, think about what, what Paul is saying here. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So the aorist is about, in, in terms of Greek grammar, Aorist conveys the notion of a of a snapshot of action. In other words, it, it views an action as a completed event. Okay, it's not an action in process. It's an action that is a completed fact. It's a completed event, not in process, but already completed. You know, it's you know, it, it's whole. All right. Action as a whole, not in process, or we're in the process of becoming something different. It is what it is, and it's complete. Now, if you're looking at that, this is a, a classic already but not yet kind of thing. We've already been rescued from the domain of darkness, and we've already been transferred to the kingdom. That's just what, that's what the verse says. If you're thinking that kingdom references in the New Testament are only about a millennial kingdom, get used to disappointment. That's not true. Now, some of them, I would you know, say, yeah, you can, you can have that discussion. You can make that point. But there are others that are clearly indicating that the kingdom is already. We're, we're back to this already, but not yet. 
Um, as far as the not yet, I mean, there are passages, you know, the same writer, Paul, writes other things. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Well, if the kingdom's already, what is, what's this talk about delivering the kingdom? Well, okay, that, that's something yet in the future. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, after destroying them. Right now, the authority of the rulers and powers has been nullified. They have no authority over the Gentile. The Gentile is not only allowed to come back to the true God, the Most High, who had divorced them, who had forsaken them back at the Babel event. Not only is the Gentile allowed to come back, but God wants them to come back. God insists on it. Okay, so we, we've got this, this futuristic aspect of they, the, 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 the judgment of Psalm 82 over the gods of the nations that they will die like men hasn't happened yet. Again, we, we've had a whole episode on this about the judgment of the gods, the death of the gods with Dave Burnett. Again, if you're a podcast listener, you should be familiar with that. Let's go to 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Well, there's a connection there between kingdom and judging the living and the dead. It hasn't happened yet. Again, the book of Revelation is going to go on to describe that and set it in, again, futuristic terms. And, and I should say at this point, you know, we, I know we have preterists in the audience, but you know, what, what we have to realize is that in terms of eschatology, when we, when we see New Testament writers talk about day of the Lord things, we have to realize that day of the Lord things are connected. You can't chop one off and look at the others. What happens at the day of the Lord? The righteous are all vindicated. The wicked are all judged. You have a general resurrection. You have a remaking of heaven and earth. As we talked about a, a few weeks ago, uh, you have at the return of Jesus, the Antichrist is killed off. Okay, I mean, you have things like this that are, are associated with, it, it's the, the, the one term you could put on it is finality. Okay, evil is finally dealt with. The resurrection, the full resurrection, you know, becoming as the stars, Daniel, you know, Daniel's talk of, of, the day, of the day of the Lord. That happens in its fullness. The righteous are vindicated fully. Okay, it, none of these things are in process anymore when the day of the Lord comes. And that, again, you know, in, in my judgment, is the real weakness of preterism. I think other systems have weaknesses that we've talked about here on the podcast as well. That's why I don't buy into systems. They're all beautiful, except where they're not. Okay? This is one of the great weaknesses. When the day of the Lord happens, these things are no longer in process. They're done. And we, we live in a world today that I think it's a fair, fairly easy assessment to make to, or to say that, eh, this stuff isn't done yet. Again, that, that, that seems obvious to me, and I think it would be obvious to you know, any of the New Testament writers. But, I mean, I, I figured that was worth a, a, a bit of a rabbit trail. This is day of the Lord language. We have already but not yet. Here in, in Colossians 1, it's the already. In some of these other verses, it's the not yet. You know, it, it's the thing that's going to come to produce this sort of you know, finality um, where things are no longer in process. And what's really interesting is the language here, the verbs. You know, Paul, Paul looks at the present state of things, the already, since he does use the aorist, okay, that, that you, know, you know, and the aorist, again, is this snapshot action. But then we have these other statements about, you know, the, 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 the kingdom with the day of the Lord stuff that 
the New Testament writers are using Old Testament language and quoting Old Testament passages that that haven't happened yet. And and you know, if we went through the New Testament, some of them are going to be errors too, and other tenses like perfects. Why why is it both? Why is it both? Okay, how can you have snapshot action of both the already and the not yet? How can you do that? Because in the mind of the writer and in the mind of God, because let's not leave the Holy Spirit out of producing the text here, both of those things are, each of those things is just as real as the other. Okay, even though from our perspective, you know, we're embodied beings, we're going through the course of time, we're living life, we're waiting, we're hoping, okay, all this, this kind of talk in the New Testament. These things are going to be accomplished. Okay, there, there, there's there's a finality for them already in the mind of God. They are destined events because of the work of Christ. Okay, if if you didn't have that, you know, then you might get some other ways of describing them. But in the wake of Christ, who is at the right hand of God, he's ruling and reigning. I mean, if he's at the right hand of God, he's reigning over something here. Well, again, the kingdom's already you know already you know here in some sense. We, you know, we're still doing things like the fullness of the Gentiles. We still have to do evangelism and all this kind of stuff. But the kingdom is a present reality. It was established. There's your snapshot. Okay, it, it's a beachhead. You know, to, to use a, a World War II analogy, Normandy happened. Okay, there it is. You know, and, and without it, we're not going to. You know, the, the war is not won. With it, the war is basically won. I mean, we can say that in hindsight, and of course, people who were doing the planning, even even the enemies, thought that you know, if if the Allies ever do this, we're done, we're toast. I mean, that's not hard to find. I read lots of books on World War II, so that's why I'm going there. It's an established reality. Now, in terms of the participants, okay, there's there's God's established reality, and in terms of the participants, well, there's a lot of work to do here. But the way the planner Again, the, the 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 chief architect here, the God, you know, who 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 came up with this plan about you know with with Jesus, to not only you know undo the effects of the fall, sends the Spirit to you know inhibit depravity and deal with depravity, and and then he you know allows the nations or solicits the nations, legitimizes the nations to come back into the fold. Okay, the God who's thinking about all those things, they're all centered on Jesus, the event of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. Those things have happened now, so they are, in fact, here and in place. The already is just as real as the not yet. And the not yet, here's, I think, the more important point. The not yet will be just as real as the already. That's why you have the writers use the same kind of tenses for both sides of this coin. It telegraphs something. The thing you're hoping for, the thing you're waiting for, is going to be just as real. And it is in the mind of God as real as this, as the present. So again, we, we, we kind of miss the flavorings of, of these sorts of things, but, but they're important. One more thought here before we, we end for the, for the episode, domain of darkness. Hmm, again, let's put our thinking caps back on. What might that be? We're rescued from the domain of darkness. Well, what was the domain of darkness in, the, in Old Testament cosmic geography? The hint is it's the opposite of the kingdom of his beloved son, okay? I mean, in Old Testament cosmic geography, the domain of darkness is everything outside, everything other than the domain of Yahweh. Now, in the Exodus conquest, remember Ruhamai? I said the Exodus uses this a few times for the, you know, what happened, you know, delivering Israel out of Egypt. If you think about the Exodus context, again, if, if that is intentional, and it may be because Ruhamai is not, is not that common of a word. 
But it's interesting because if that's the case, then the con the, the more immediate context in cosmic geography, the domain of darkness, is the kingdom of Azazel. Remember, they have to pass through the desert, the desert wilderness. You know, on, on their way from they, they've left Egypt, they camped at Sinai, they leave Sinai, now they got to go to the Promised Land. And this is, you know, part of that is the the, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement ceremony, where where you get Azazel mentioned and whatnot. But you know, there's this conscious consciousness. There's this idea that that everywhere outside the camp, because now we're not in the Promised Land yet, so we can't attach holy cosmic geographical significance to the land yet because the land's still under dominion of our enemies and, and specifically you know descendants of the nephilim are a big factor here and that goes takes us all the way back to the chaos of babylon and all that you know all that stuff's going on here but we're not in the land yet so it's not the land that that is is sanctified is holy the land hasn't become yahweh's inheritance yet in real time but we are we have become yahweh's inheritance in real time we are israel Yahweh is with us, the presence is with us, and so we're mobile. We go through the desert. Everywhere outside of the camp is the domain of darkness. And that domain is the domain of Azazel and in you know in Leviticus and whatnot. Now Azazel, of course, becomes a Satan figure in the in the Second Temple literature and in the New Testament as well. Now, you know, th- there's a number of, of, of ways to talk about this. I don't, I don't want to spoil uh, too much of this because we're going to get into uh, we're going to get into this somewhat with our in, in our interview with uh, Archie Wright, um, you know, and he'll be a speaker at the conference as well. Uh, I, I will I will say this though, there's there's what I believe is is kind of kind of a poor way of framing the discussion. You know, uh, what where do we get in the Old Testament some of these ideas about Satan? Well, all of the data points. This is this is my view. This is nobody else's view. This is well, I shouldn't say nobody else's view. It's it's the view of other people, but you know, we're talking about me right now. I would characterize it this way. Yes, there's development in the idea of Satan. Yes, there's a development in the idea of Satan, uh, you know, and and his domain and his relationship to the fallen sons of God and the and the, the sons of God that rule the nations, you know, who are in rebellion, all that stuff. That develops over time. But there's nothing in what the New Testament says, and I would add there's nothing in what the Second Temple says. Second Temple and New Testament connect a lot of dots here that the Old Testament doesn't connect, but the dots are all found in the Old Testament. There's nothing foreign. Now, that is is a somewhat controversial view, but I think I can defend it pretty well. That's that's When my book on demons, The Powers of Darkness, comes out, I don't know when that'll be, Sometime in, in 2019, that's that's what you're going to read in that book. But just for now, the domain of darkness, again, if you're putting it in its Old Testament context, you've got a connection with Azazel, cosmic geography, and all that. It makes sense to connect those dots in the New Testament. They've already been connected in the Second Temple period. But even though the Old Testament isn't the place where they're connected, they're all there. That's another way of saying Second Temple Jewish demonology and second temple jewish satanology are consistent with old testament demonology and old testament satanology instead of demonology i should probably say old testament theology of the powers of darkness or evil spirits the testaments are consistent and and so is second temple thinking here because all that they're doing is they're looking at the old testament whether you're a second temple jewish writer or a New Testament writer looking, you're looking back at your Old Testament. In the New Testament writer's case, he's also looking into Second Temple literature because that now exists. But they're looking back on, on the Hebrew Bible 
because that's their point of orientation for sacred scripture. And they're seeing dots, and they're connecting them. They're drawing conclusions about the dots they see. That's all they're doing. So they're not just making stuff up. Oh, I wish we had a, a full-blown doctrine of this. Well, I can't find any of this in the Old Testament, so let's just make it up. Okay, that's the way overly zealous critics look at things, and they overstate the data. It's a problem. So anyway, didn't want to rabbit trail too much on that. But here in Colossians 1, again, to wrap up, you've got certain features already that show you an awareness, uh, you know, of, that show you Paul's awareness of cosmic geography. And again, as we read through the epistle, I think it's good to point out that Paul has a grasp of, of, of these things that, that we, you know, think are important from the Old Testament theology that maybe to, if you're reading an English Bible, aren't quite as apparent. But again, if, if you can penetrate the translation a little bit, you're going to see the consistency of, of thought between the New Testament back to the Old Testament. And that's, you know, sort of your, your, your Bible lesson kind of stuff when it comes to just, you know, how, how, what we get out of Colossians 1 for ourselves. I think the already but not yet is a big deal. And the fact that we, you know, we share an inheritance with the Holy Ones. I mean, these are all important points. Again, I think they help us think about ourselves in a, a theologically, not only a theologically astute way, but I mean, that this stuff ought to have an impact on, on your sense of identity and ultimately your sense of mission as we keep Colossians in context, that Paul is giving this message in a Gentile place where there's plenty of Gentiles there and there's Jew, there are Jews listening. Some of them get it and some of them don't want to hear it. Okay. That's, that's just important to grasp and as we look at the epistle. Mike, is there any way we can get a sneak peek of next week, what you'll be covering for the rest of chapter 1? Oh, yeah. In verse 14, I mean, we're going to start in, in Colossians 1.13 and go, I think, down through about verse 20. And there's just so many things here. Redemption, in, in whom, you know, in, in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, the, um, Ron Johnson has has uh, done, I think, six parts of a, of a series now on, on the, the pod, not the podcast, but the blog, talking about some of the weaknesses of substitution, you know, and penal terminology and, and asking the question, well, how do we, how do we sort of draw the, you know, the right theological conclusions and, and use the right vocabulary and, and not use, you know, poor vocabulary? So we're going to get into some of that. I've already posted a few thoughts on, on the blog about that. I'll probably do a little bit more of that before the episode, but we'll hit that. You got all this talk from verse 15 on how Christ is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. That's always controversial. The firstborn language, you know, if Jesus is uncreated, why would, why do we get this language? Um, all that sort of thing. So, you know, there, there's just, there's just a lot of stuff in here. So I hope we can get up through verse 20. All right. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. All right, real quick, Mike, I just want to remind everybody, go get your live stream tickets for the Naked Bible Conference, August 18th, if you haven't done so. We appreciate everybody that has so far. And I know everybody else is looking forward to the Book of Colossians as we move forward. And I just want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.